Normally, Jonathan wants you to stay standing, but I'll have you sit this time because we're going to do something a little different. Today we're preaching from Psalm 100, and Psalm 100 is kind of a special psalm to me and to my family. When we were at Bethlehem in seminary, right before we moved here, we memorized together as a family Psalm 100. And Bethlehem has what they call fighter verses. They teach you each week how to memorize parts of whole sections of the Bible, and they put them to song. So... I would like to sing for you Psalm 100 <laughs> as a way to show you how simple a psalm, how simply psalms invite us to worship, that even children can memorize these and enter into the presence of God. With his own words, he invites us all in as his children. So Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. <laughs> Stop that. I want to encourage you to memorize Psalm 100 so you can come into his presence as a little child singing his praises as your heavenly father. Let's pray. God, show us what childlike worship is today. Show us how you call us to come into your presence. Show us why you are worthy of our praise and what you have done to make us welcome in your home by the blood of King Jesus. Amen. What is worship? What is it that the Psalms are calling us to in worship? Instead of just defining it as a good engineer would, I want to tell you a story. At some point in your parenting journey, if you are ever to have children or if you have had children, your small child will come up to you running with all kinds of excitement written all over their faces, delight in their voices. Daddy, daddy, look, I drew with you, with my own hands and a crayon, an amazingly accurate, beautifully crafted representation of your likeness. She'll be so impressed with her work that the joy just bubbles over with praise and she wants to invite you in to that praise with her. That is worship. It's recognizing the worthiness of something and giving it the praise that it's due and inviting others to join you in that praise. It's so beautiful. Everybody else needs to look at this. Well, back into the scenario, knowing your daughter and her abilities, you probably realize she doesn't have 
the ability to create such stunning artwork. But, you know, there's child prodigies. Maybe mine is one of them. So I'm willing to look. And as she flips over the page, your, vo- your face turns from anticipation to, oh, that looks really nice, sweetheart. Pat her on the head. But despite your words of affirmation, she knows your true feelings from your face and your, your voice. You're not really joining her in the worship. You're just faking it. You've rejected her efforts to share her joy. Now she's got skill to draw, maybe. She's not going to stop drawing, but she certainly does not want to share them with you anymore. She will still continue to worship. That's what she was made for. Even if you won't receive it, she'll just shift her worship to something else. Because what you missed was that she wasn't really excited about her own drawing. She was excited about you. She was showing you in her weak and unskilled way that she delights in you. Now, a good parent, as all of you, I am sure, are, will recognize these feeble efforts at worship and receive them with joy. You will match her excitement with your own. That drawing makes dad so proud, he hangs it up in his office. I got a whole file cabinet full of them. Wonderful drawings for my children that I've put on display. Sure, they're drawings that only a parent could love. But, and others will look at it and see just a disorganized, silly scribble. They might laugh or criticize her amateur work or think, wow, you must not be a very good parent if that's a representation of you. They might wonder what dad and daughter are so excited about. But dad sees a daughter's love in those drawings. And he is happy to share that gladness together with her. This common parenting experience actually illustrates really well how many people come to worship our God. How many people come to church on Sunday for worship? Many are like those little children, excited that God is their father, eager to just show up and bring him their weak, unskilled attempts at showing him their delight in him. Joy is still written all over their faces. Delight comes through their very off-key singing voice. But they don't care because God is delighted to receive it. He sees their love for him and he receives it with joy. Others may look at what happens in a gathering like this and wonder what in the world is this fuss all about? They don't see what others see. They see nothing worthy of such exuberance. That's just the pastor. It's his job to be excited. There's nothing that captures their hearts and makes them want to put on such a humiliating display. So for a while, they might just go along with it. They heard this is kind of the right thing to do. They'll do the rituals and mouth along the words. Maybe after a little time, they'll suggest, hey, there's some things you could do to liven this up a little bit. Maybe you could get some training to be better at your artwork. But after some time, they just give up. Eventually, they all give up, thinking this is silly, this is boring, this is maybe just insulting to my much more mature intelligence. But God calls us to be like little children who are in love with their father. He shows us who he is, why he's worthy of such affection, what he's done for us. 
Psalm 100 shows us the appropriate response of a child loved by God. We must showcase Yahweh's salvation in joyful worship. Showcase Yahweh's salvation in joyful worship. So this psalm, as simple as it is, calls us in just five verses to joyful worship. It's easy enough for little children to memorize. I think Titus was five when he sang it in front of a room full of people with, with excitement on his face. They aren't, these aren't long, complex, orchestral operas for only the advanced worshipers. They're an invitation to everyone to be childlike in worship. There's two sections here that give a command first on how to worship, and then the reason why you should worship. Twice it does that. First, in verses 1 to 3, there's a call to all the nations to sing praise to your maker. God made you. So you ought to give him the praise due his name as the one who put you in this world. And then verses four and five exhort us to give thanks to your savior. Our relationship with God is so much more than creator and creature, but he has made a way for us to come together as one and be in a relationship that makes us want to praise him. When we recognize who this God is, it wells up with joy in our hearts, overflows in all kinds of creative acts, even if they are unskilled. It's the natural impulse of someone saved by this amazing God. We want to showcase his salvation in joyful worship. So let's go back and read this time, not sing. I will read Psalm 100 where it calls us to sing praise to your maker. I'll read verses one through three. The heading tells us it's a psalm for giving thanks, meaning here's some instruction for how to bring your childlike love to your father. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. As I think about contemporary worship, trying to figure out what is worship, and look around us, and maybe you've experienced many other things, I think that our generation of Christians has showed that we are really bored with church. Maybe not bored with what we often call church, but bored with what church ought to be. Churches have done everything to try to get people to engage, get them interested. They'll turn the lights down low, crank up the volume on the music, shred some awesome rock worship song, decorate the building so it's really welcoming to get people to let their guard down and engage their senses to bring out their emotions with good aromatic coffee and beautiful artwork. You put the most attractive and kindest people at the front door, talking about you greeters, who are there with nice gifts to encourage everyone and make them feel special when they walk in. We're trying to get their emotions flowing so they have this worship experience that makes them want to come back for more. It's not that all those things are necessarily wrong, but we kind of lost focus. Because we know that the church down the street has a much nicer building than us. And that other one over there has way better music. 
And, and that one down the street, that direction, gives away better gifts. And that one on the other side of town has more organized programming. And there's a lot of them that have more applicable and engaging messages. Ours just looks like a bunch of little childlike scribbles in comparison. And people get bored with scribbles. But these verses dramatically will change our perspective. They speak nothing about, about the ambiance of worship, the style of music, the experience itself. Yes, emotions are a part of worship. They should be. Because we are humans. We have emotions. That's part of our experience. And you need to have buildings and welcome people in a way that is not distracting. But all of this stuff must flow out of something that is key throughout this psalm. A complete focus on Yahweh, the Lord, God himself. There are seven commands in this psalm that lay out the expectations for worship that have very little in common with what we often experience in worship today. It's the person who is obedient to these seven commands that most experiences true worship of God. So verses one and two show us what this worship looks like. You notice in these first two verses, the excitement, the joy, the happiness, right? It's all over those two verses. But it's not just experienced happiness. It's commanded. You are commanded to be joyful in worship. How can, how can you command emotions? Well, it doesn't honor God to show up and go, I'm here. What else do you want? I, I, I took communion. Aren't you happy? No, he wants us engaged. He wants us to delight in it. That doesn't mean you have to leave behind all your real pain, your brokenness, your sorrow, your anxiety, sadness, and doubt. Yes, bring those. And they actually fit rare, very well with this kind of joy and gladness. And that's a whole nother sermon, which you've heard me preach a couple times. God wants people to come into his presence eager to meet with him, excited to see him and honor him. That's what worship is all about. It's about him, not anything else, anybody else here. Every one of these verses in Psalm 100 references his name, suggesting worship isn't about you. It's about him. Worship is gathering to recognize his worthiness, that he is worthy of our praise. In fact, the more you try to accommodate people's felt needs, the more you distract them, you point them to their self, thinking they are the ones worthy of affection and attention. The whole purpose of worship is to realize, of, of our gathered worship, is to realize that the best thing about us has nothing to do with us. That God would descend to spend time with us. Who are we? We are so thankful that we come into his presence to sing. But I'm getting way ahead of myself there. Let's just focus a little bit more on verse 1, where we see who is commanded to worship. The psalm says, all the earth, every nation, people from everywhere are commanded to come to worship. Your first duty as a human being is to come and worship God, to gather near others to worship him. 
There's no other thing in your life that is more important. Everything else you do in your life must flow out of this worship. Be inspired by worship. The psalm is actually the conclusion of a series of kingship psalms that highlight God, Yahweh, as the king over all creation, over all the earth, explaining that your life is under his dominion. He is your master. Your home belongs to him. Your job is to accomplish his purposes. And now this psalm is finishing saying that King Yahweh, sitting on his throne, has just flung open wide all the doors for everyone to come in and sing to him. Enjoy his glory. I kind of have a frozen picture going on in my head. Anybody else? No? All right. I want to sing. Open the doors. Did not know they did that anymore. Okay. Got me, Grace. Help me out. Verse 2 explains what we are to do then with this invitation of the doors opening wide. God commands us to come. Come. What does come imply other than stop doing what you're doing, go this way, and enter in? It, it suggests you're leaving something behind to come where he is. Worship's not simply doing whatever you're doing and thinking about God, though that is part of life. You glorify him in everything you do. But the primary way you worship him is by stopping what you're doing, setting it aside, putting it behind you, just letting it all go to come and gather with other people to worship, devoting all your attention, even just for a moment, on our king. By prioritizing corporate worship, you are declaring to the world that everything about your life, not just everything about your life, everything out there is in submission to him. Everything is for his purposes, which is why verse 2 says we must also serve. One of the most common words translated as worship throughout the whole Bible is this word for serve. We often think of worship as, as standing up and following Jonathan and singing whatever words he put on the screen. And if you're really into it, you're a wild Minnesotan, you might sway your hips a little bit. Some of you I've seen put your hands up because you must be really moved in worship. But worship in the Old Testament included so much more than that. Not, not less than that. It includes those things, but so much more, including this idea of service. <clears throat> this word is what was used to describe the priests and the Levites in the temple, summarizing all the work that they did together to make worship happen at the temple, including designing everything they did there fabricating all of the fabrics, all of the poles, all of the furniture, building it all, filling it, operating with the music and the sacrifices, all of that was service. The word particularly has the same root word as slave. Worship is surrendering yourself to God. He, your master, you, his slave, to accomplish his work your life under his command. You show that God is worthy in worship by the work you do to make his will your priority. You're taking your time 
to draw with whatever skills you have your little picture of him and then coming to show it off to him. That's what true worship should look like. And all of this worship flows not out of just dutiful obedience, as we've said, but deep knowledge of who God is. That's what verse 3 explains for us, this motivation for joyful worship. People who worship like this with this gladness that seems to just well up and pour out of them, they know Yahweh is God. He made me. I belong to him. I am his sheep. The first line of this verse 3 is key. Know that Yahweh is God. To know is more than just to give intellectual assent. Yeah, I know. He created everything. Okay, big deal. It's having an intimate knowledge, a relational experience with God. Not just any God, Yahweh. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the God of Israel. He gave them that name so they could know him relationally, not just as their creator, but the God who came and dwelt with them. Remember, though, in verse 1, that he's not just the God for Israel. He's the God of all nations who are called to come and worship. All the other nations have gods. Molech, Baal, Dagon, Ra, Allah. But this psalm is saying that Yahweh is the only true one. All of them are pretend. Atheists today like to say, well, you guys only believe in in Jesus and Yahweh as God because you live in a culture, you were born in a culture that... That, that's the dominant religion. If you lived somewhere else, you would probably worship that God. Like that's some kind of trump card. Checkmate. Yeah, you're probably right. I would be an idolater wherever I go. That's my nature. That doesn't say anything about who is the real God. This psalm says Yahweh is. The God of Israel is the true God that demands worship from all people. He's your creator. He made you. We belong to him because he fashioned us. He deserves our worship just as a child owes their parents happy obedience because they brought you into this world, right? But this is more than just saying, like your mom probably did one day, I brought you into this world and I could take you out of it. Like an obey or else ultimatum. The psalmist is saying here that Israel belongs to God. They belong to him. He takes care of them like a shepherd takes care of his sheep. He leads them to refreshing water. He protects them from the predators. He leads them to eat in the greenest pastures. But it was always the plan of God for Israel to experience that in such a way that they would invite the neighboring nations in to be part of it. Deuteronomy chapter 4 commands Israel to obey the laws so that all the neighbors will say, surely this great... This is a great and wise and under, this nation is a wise and understanding people. They must be. How could they not be? These must be really important people. Why? For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? They have to be a great people because great gods don't hang out with loser people. Well, that's not true. He's here with us right now. God has come to dwell with some really unskilled, silly people. But when you realize that this sovereign creator of the universe uses all of that power to protect and provide for his own, 
that just leads you to joyful celebration, leads you to worship that invites others to know him and be part of it, to delight in him as you do. It causes you to make a joyful noise no matter what your skill level is. That word in verse one, make a joyful noise, one word that means to shout in victory because he's your God. He's invited you to be with him. It's like a kid who's told, hey, we're going to Disney World tomorrow. Woohoo! I've seen it. I've seen it happen. They don't need to be told to get excited. It's welling up. It's bursting out of them because they know what gift they've been given. And this leads us to the second half of the psalm, which clarifies that it's not the gift that gets us excited, but the giver himself. We get to be with him. He wants a relationship with us and has made it happen. Verses four and five command us then to give thanks to your savior. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Why? For because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This section now gives a little more focus, direction to our worship. We're not just excited because it's cool to experience worship, because we have this great ambiance that gets us whipped up, or we like hanging out with all these people, and you get cool stuff, and the songs are really great. We're not just coming to a party. The praise isn't general happiness, but we've been brought near to God by his own goodness. And so our praise and thanks is directed toward him because his kindness has saved us. Worship is responding to what God has done in salvation, giving him thanks. Twice, this one verse tells us to give thanks for allowing us into his presence. That's what you should be excited about. Notice that verse four commands you to enter his gates and his courts. What is that? That's temple language. You welcome into the city. The city is no longer this big barricade that says you cannot enter. The gates are open. Come in and come right to the top of the mountain and come into his home. The court is open for you to come into God's home to have a relationship with him. Worship's not about having a cool emotional experience, but enjoying a relationship with God himself. That's what we were made for. This temple imagery is the, of God's dwelling place is part of the main storyline of the Bible, right from the beginning all the way to the end. God made Adam and Eve, in the, put them in the Garden of Eden. It says to serve, same word, to be his servant and to enjoy fellowship with him in that garden. And that was a place of beautiful, pure bliss. No greater happiness has any person experienced than Adam and Eve in that garden. But they rejected it, thinking at the suggestion of the serpent that outside of the garden, there was greater happiness to be found away from God, away from his rules. And it all fell apart when they disobeyed. So God kicked them out of his dwelling place. That's what you want? Go find it. Good luck. Get out of here. Go find happiness apart from the source of happiness. And ever since that day, God's been calling them back. Come back, my people. 
come have a relationship with me. And he's been working to make a way for them to be forgiven and made clean so they could enter again. And there's temples all over the place in the Old Testament throughout the Bible. Noah's Ark was a kind of temple, a place where the walls were shut in, God with his people, all who did not want God outside of it in judgment. And God called Israel and commanded them to make a tabernacle, a tent, where they could come in, they could offer a sacrifice to pay for their rebellion, their sin, and come near God and enjoy fellowship with him. After a while, they upgraded that. They felt that was a little silly, kind of cartoon artwork, a tent for God, are you kidding me? So they upgraded to a temple, a beautiful, massive structure covered in gold and with giant angel statues all over. Massive place. They, they, helped, they made it so big and glorious to emphasize the grandeur of the experience that they were having in God's presence. But all that beauty and glory still could not help them see, know, and truly delight in God. They just went along with all the rituals, mouthing the words along with everybody else. Sure, they came, became really skilled in their art, but it wasn't for the love of God. It's for the love of themselves. How much of our contemporary worship is just a pursuit of excellence for the love of ourselves? We must come out of that idolatry and come humbly into his presence as children. This psalm suggests the same progression that's looking back to what we should have had, hearing this call, coming into God's presence and feeling this tension. This isn't quite what we should be experiencing. Israel's singing Psalm 100, and that in the psalm, there's a promise of a future, a forever future with God, a future of one day in a new Jerusalem, as Revelation 21 tells us, when the gates are wide open and there's nobody shut out any longer. A place where everything's restored to a greater glory than even the Garden of Eden. Where we can just be children enjoying their father forever. And the last verse hints at how this is going to come to pass. Yahweh is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love. That's one Hebrew word, chesed. It's just so packed with meaning. All the promises of God, all his faithfulness and mercy, his forgiveness packed into that commitment to his people. God promised he would make a way for his people to return to the garden led by a righteous king. He promised to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey and to protect them from all their enemies. He promised to give them a new heart, a new spirit that could worship him and obey him, not because the law was commanded, but because it was written inside. And they wanted to do it. This psalm has seven of those commands, explaining how to worship him rightly. And if we're honest, we must confess that we cannot do that. We don't. It's impossible. Be happy all the time. I carry too many burdens. Come into his presence? I'm too sinful. Give thanks to him for what? All the pain and the shame I bear? Come up the mountain to his dwelling place? I can hardly stand. I'm too weak. Get excited about all of this? To be honest, I'm kind of bored with church. 
But if you're bored with church, consider that it's probably not church you're bored with, but God himself. It is God's design that the people be very unimpressive so that you become enamored with his impressiveness. If you struggle to come, take your eyes off of yourself and look at what he has done for you in Christ. Here we are in our sin, but he has made a way to make us able to obey this simple psalm. He made a way to recreate you. It is God who made us in this world, and it is God who must remake us for a new world of worship. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came, humbled himself, come down from the throne in heaven to take our disobedience upon himself. He entered into the courts. He was free to walk in. That was his house. But he walked in and took the judgment of God. He became the sacrifice so that we could be free to enter by his blood. He was the priest, faithfully serving with gladness, interceding for us so that we could follow him in and be glad servants with him. He took our temptation and sorrows upon himself so we could have his spirit of joy. When you realize what God has done for you in Christ, you come with singing. You leave it all behind to gather with his people and shout your victory cry. He has defeated your sin in his death and he has risen from the dead. You are now his. You are his sheep. His steadfast love is for you. And he guarantees you will endure forever in his presence. A promise that lasts for all generations, he tells us. He told Moses, this is who I am. This is my nature. Exodus 34, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin to the third and fourth generation, this psalm says, to all generations. All generations who surrender to King Jesus. If you grasp who God is and what he has done for you, this Psalm becomes your nature. You become a child of God who delights in bringing your gifts to the Father, showcasing your love for him because he loved you. If you understand that God kept his promises in Christ by his death and resurrection, he forgave your sin and gave you his spirit, this becomes who you are. Paul says, you can't help but sing because Ephesians 5, 19 says the first evidence of being filled with the Spirit is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you wonder why in the world is he so excited? Why are these people putting their hands up? Why are they singing so joyfully? Why are they so eager to be here no matter the threat or the cost? It all looks like a bunch of silly scribbles to me. Perhaps, perhaps it's because you don't see what we see. You don't know whom we know. You can't whip up that excitement. You can't just go somewhere else to find more excellent artistry and music and architecture and preaching. You need to shift your eyes away from yourself and us 
and put them on Christ. Know that he is God. It is he who has remade us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We enter into this gathering with abundant praise and thanks because Jesus is good and his steadfast love toward us by his blood endures forever. Join us in service, gladness, and singing. Showcase Yahweh's steadfast love, his salvation in joyful worship. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would make us all that childlike worshiper. You are glad when we come into your presence, not because we have great gifts to give you, not because we have great abilities, but because you saved us and we are your children. Make us free, free from thoughts of what other people think, free from, from those burdens that tear us down, free from fear of threats, of loss, of even death. Confident that Jesus has been raised and we are raised forever with him. Amen.